You are listening to the podcast of the Y Church of the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. Romans 8, 19-23 For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship the redemption of our bodies. Now to Romans 5, 3-5. through 5. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. All right, thank you, Erica. Well, I had a professor in class a year ago as I started a doctoral program, he came to speak to a bunch of pastors about their mental health and well-being. And it was a fantastic day of lecture. And somewhere along the way, I heard that he speaks at marriage events and marriage conferences. And so we have been so blessed to have him here with us yesterday and today. I see familiar faces from our marriage event last night that we had at Poor Not Sego. And now uh, he's here with us to share Sunday morning and to share this message And so I wanted to share just a brief introduction, and then we'll welcome him forward. Kevin Van Lant is a licensed clinical psychologist who received his Ph.D. from Rosemead School of Psychology at Biola University. Dr. Van Lant serves as an associate professor and program director for the Pastoral Care and Counseling Program at Talbot School of Theology, that's where I met him, as well as the Marriage and Family Therapy Program where he teaches courses in marriage counseling, psychopathology, pastoral counseling, and health psychology. Dr. Van Lant's private practice is located in Los Alamitos, California. In his clinical role, he works primarily with depression, anxiety, complex grief, and stress disorders, as well as couples and those serving from long-term emotional and spiritual distress. He is married and the father of three sons. In his spare time, he likes to sail, fly fish, read, listen to music, and anything related to hanging out with his wife and boys. And would you give a warm Minnesota welcome to Dr. Van Lant. Thank you. Well, what a delight it is to be here. I'm sort of a son of Minnesota, uh, born here. Moved away from here when I was a little boy, but visited a lot over the years, and uh, it's always nice to return although it's a little cold here. So uh, Southern California was a hard place to leave, but really beautiful to be here. And then I'm always reminded, I love being able to speak when there's a worship time just before I come up. And it is really a reminder of the shared experience we have as fellow believers. And no matter where I go in the country, no matter where I go in the world, when I'm with a group of believers, I feel like I'm home. And uh, I just really experienced that as we were going through the worship. I'm really, over the years, 
have become more and more specialized in this area of mental health in the church. And that kind of grew out of a lot of experiences in which I feel like the church was a bit ill-prepared to attend to the growing mental health crisis that's happening in our country. I could go fairly in-depth on that, but that's not really the direction of today's talk. But what we are seeing, without a doubt, is an increase in almost every category of mental illness. And a lot of people, a lot of good people, a lot of thoughtful people are trying to figure out why that is. And yet, in a sense, what we're going to talk about today, especially as it relates to that passage in Romans, Romans 8, I think it helps explain it. And for us as believers, I think it helps explain it at a whole different level and then allows us through scripture, through experience to kind of know what do we do with that in response. So I'm going to talk about suffering. It's not a very sexy topic, but it's hopeful. And I'm so grateful that I'm here on a communion Sunday because I think it has a very similar kind of arc to it, which is a path that leads towards redemption. And so we're going to start out in a more, maybe a more troubled spot, but as we end today, we're going to talk about redemption and God's desire to redeem creation. So if we put that Romans passage up on the screen, thank you. Just a couple of parts of this I really want you to focus on. And notice the passage starts out with a hopeful thought, right? For creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. And then it kind of moves to a more tricky part, which is creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, And then it moves on, creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay at some point, but not at this point, it doesn't appear. And then really I think the part that I want you to focus on the most is this verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as if in the pains of childbirth right up to this present moment. When sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, What we see in Scripture is that it broke everything. Like sin, that sin broke everything. It broke the earth that we live on. Uh, You all get tornadoes here. We get earthquakes. Other places get hurricanes and forest fires and everything else. Right? Where do you live where you don't have some potential for some major sort of environmental trauma? It broke our bodies. Many of you struggle with chronic health issues. Our bodies are frail. It doesn't take much to break something in them. It damaged our relationships, not just with God. One of the first things that we read in Scripture in Genesis is when Adam and Eve sinned, it disrupted our experience, our relationship with God in this way of directness that Adam and Eve had that we have through God's Spirit. And part of this is that it also kind of damaged this thing, because it's part of the body. Your brain is perhaps the most complex part of your body. And we oftentimes, historically in the church, have sort of separated the brain from the rest of the body. And we've been okay with treating the rest of the body, but we struggle with knowing what to do with the brain because we can't see it. We don't know exactly what's going on in there. And we've thought of sort of our mind as the domain of theology in the church at times. And so it's been difficult to know how do we let people come in and treat mental illness because we wrestle with this idea of what does that mean that maybe the way we think and feel 
is disrupted? And whose domain is it to sort of intercede in that area of life? So as a Christian clinical psychologist, I try to walk both of those worlds, speak into people's lives both spiritually, but also speak into their lives clinically. Uh, So this morning, I'm going to try to bridge a little of that space with you. But last night, if you were at the marriage retreat, I don't retreat, conference talk, I don't know what it was exactly, but the marriage time, I talked a little bit about the importance of knowing your own story. And I wanted to share with you briefly just a little bit of my own story, because the way I think about the rest of what we're going to talk about is so heavily influenced by my own personal story, by the stories of just countless therapy patients that I've worked with over the years, and then what I'm taught in Scripture about this nature of suffering and pain and how do we move through it well. When I was in seventh grade, I met my first wife. We were high school sweethearts, got married shortly out of... We were married in our early 20s, which seems unusual uh, nowadays, but back then wasn't particularly unusual. We went through a courtship. I... She was a a part of a church that had a very active youth ministry. I was raised in the church, but the youth ministry wasn't particularly vibrant, and she had been inviting me for years, and I was a little bit of a wild man, and I don't think I was dating material, so she kept inviting me to church, kept inviting me to her church. Eventually, I went sometime later in high school and was really inspired to really recommit my life to the Lord. We started dating. I was unsure about what I wanted to do after high school, which I'm sure some of you can relate to. So I got a job working for the telephone company, climbing telephone poles. She was working at Disneyland, and we had a good life. She became pregnant. We weren't really ready for that, but and she really wasn't ready for it. So it was difficult in the beginning, but over time, really warmed to the idea of having a baby. And then about eight months into her pregnancy, she had what's referred to as an amniotic embolism. So if any of you are familiar with that, it's essentially that the amniotic fluid that surrounds the baby leaks into the blood, her bloodstream and really caused her to have a heart attack. I was there, happened very suddenly, paramedics come, they're doing CPR and life support on her. Uh, before too long, we're in the emergency room. Now, no one knows what happened, right? So she's, she was perfectly healthy. It just happened like this. No one's really sure what she needs. They continue to do life support at the hospital. The waiting room in the ER starts filling up with friends and family and my pastor. And before long, there's probably 30, 40 people praying. And, but as this is going along, it's clearly not looking good. I mean, even I could kind of tell it wasn't looking good. And a few hours into this, the ER doctor comes in and says, we've done an EEG on her brain. There's no brain activity. And they were asking for permission to stop life support. I'm, you know, I, I didn't know what to do. And um, thankfully, my pastor was there, and his name was John. I said, John, what do you think I should do? And he said, I think you should ask him to do it again. Just do one more EEG. So they did another EEG and the same result. They withdrew life support. Um, She had really, for all intents and purposes, had passed away hours before that. Uh, The baby had passed away as well, little boy. And as you can imagine, my life just sort of stopped. Here I am, 25 years old, 
24, 25, my life just sort of stops. And it was a long season of rebuilding. And the Lord was good, but I wasn't so good. I was angry, depressed, disoriented, confused. I had supportive family, friends, uh, the church, everything around me. And yet it was still a time of rebuilding. And it was a slow process of rebuilding. But to be honest, the reason I'm here this morning has its roots in that experience. Because I can guarantee you I wouldn't have gone on and gotten a PhD in clinical psychology if that hadn't happened to me. And what I've learned over the years from the patients I've worked with, from my own experience and from scripture, is to value suffering. I'm not sadistic, right? I'm not masochistic. I don't like pain any more than any of you do. But over the years I have found that it seems like it's the primary refining force that God uses in our lives. And so what I'd like to do is just spend a little bit of time kind of talking about a few things that I think are applicable to you and to all of us. And again, with that overarching kind of thought of redemption, because that's what I'm really here to talk about today is how does God redeem this? So the first thing that I'd like to really kind of mention, and again, I know you all are in various places in your lives, and so my experience is not your experience. My patients' experiences are not your experiences. You're on your own unique journey. But we have more in common than we have difference. And I think we can kind of learn from each other's experiences. So Number one, what I've found is that people who move through this journey of pain and find meaning and purpose are aware of and accept the fact that life is difficult and that God can be found in the darkness. Part of this just seems like an obvious statement that life is difficult. However, I think there is something in us that wants to deny this because Difficult can mean overwhelming. Difficult can mean disorienting. Difficult can mean, how do I continue on? Like, difficult can be pretty severe. And yet, we're kind of, certainly it's clear in Scripture, it's clear from that Romans 8 passage that we just talked about, there's nothing in Scripture that suggests to us that life will not be difficult. There's nothing. In fact, Everything in Scripture seems to lead to this idea that actually life will be difficult, that that's part of the lot that we're going to experience. Now, you Minnesotans, you're a more durable crowd than us Californians. So for us Californians, I think we expect it to be all like Hollywood and, you know, super simple. I'm a little joking, but not that much. I know my parents were, you know, they were farmers from southern Minnesota, and they were just tough as nails. I don't they're just, they were a different breed than I am. So I always felt like such a pathetic weakling when my, my parents, because they just endured so much. But life is difficult. And I oftentimes ask my students, why do we think life should be so much easier than it tends to be? Like, why do we think that? Nothing 
in our external experience would suggest that it will be. But yet we kind of hold on to this denial. I, not particularly Freudian. Freud was kind of an unusual guy, <laughs> to say the least. But he wasn't an idiot. And so when he talks about that notion of denial, I think there's some reality to that. A lot of us really kind of hold to a bit of denial because the, the idea of this can be so overwhelming, we just can't let it all in. And I think it's kind of protective in a way because to let it all in too quickly might just be way too much. So for many of us, this process of kind of acknowledging this reality kind of makes us move from orientation to disorientation to reorientation. Real difficult pain is disorienting. But the goal is, how do we get reoriented? And I think scripture might have a lot to say about that. So we're going to talk about this a bit today. Number two, they don't overly personalize their suffering. Now, all suffering on some level is personal. When it's happening to you, it's happening to you, and it's personal, and it hurts, and you feel it, and no one else is really going to feel it the same way you do. But I do find that the sooner we can move away from this sort of tendency to go to, this is happening to me because it's some type of punishment or some type of vindictiveness or some type of unfairness that's happening to me directly, the sooner we can begin to, I think, conceptualize that a little more broadly, we will have, I think, a smoother path of moving through our suffering process. Because the truth is, most things aren't personal. They just aren't. They're a byproduct of what we just read in Romans. Creation's broken. Bad things are going to happen to us. Bad things have happened to me. And there was this period of time where I think I tried to make sense of my pain by overly personalizing it because it felt like, well, God must have done this for some reason, which I don't think is biblical, which I don't think is theologically sound, but it did feel that way. And so my encouragement on some level to you is when you're in the midst of that suffering, acknowledge its effect upon you personally, but don't overly personalize it. Because I don't really think that God's sort of out there with, you know, kind of his finger poking and saying, okay, I'm going to hurt this person for this reason. We don't really need that because life brings enough pain in and of itself to sort of create the structure around it that isn't biblical and I don't think is reality. Number three, this is out of Psalm 77, so if you can kind of read through that with me. From the standpoint that, broadly speaking, this idea of people remembering rightly, and I'll expand a little more on what I mean by that, but uh, verse 7 through 10 Will the Lord walk off and leave us for good? Will he never smile again? Is his love-worn threadbare? Has God's salvation promise burned out? Has God forgotten his manners? Has he angrily stomped off and left us? Just my luck, I said. The high God retires just the moment I need him. Man, that's a dark place, right? That psalmist is writing from a really dark place of feeling abandoned by God, of feeling rejected by God, of feeling left alone in this really difficult, painful experience. And then the way a lot of psalms tend to sort of flow, I sometimes think of them as like an hourglass, right? They intensify 
So the anguish intensifies and the language intensifies. And then they sort of get to this really narrow point and then all of a sudden they open up. And then the, the writer remembers God's goodness, right? So you notice the transition here in verse 11. Once again, I'll go over what God has done. Lay out on the table the ancient wonders. I'll ponder all the things you've accomplished and give a long, loving look at your acts. The difficult thing about remembering rightly is we have to remember both parts of the equation. We have to remember the reality of our pain and our loss and our suffering and our grief. And then somewhere in that process, we also have to remember God's presence in the midst of it too, even when we haven't been feeling it necessarily. And so this kind of, this remembering rightly, I don't know if you've ever been to a funeral where the eulogies are being given, and I'm not trying to be harsh here, but you're hearing the eulogies and you're thinking, is this the person that I knew? Right? Is this, because obviously we don't want to speak ill of the dead, right? So but we're just listening to it and saying, man, this is so different than my experience of this person. And I get it. It's a funeral. We're not going to get up there and talk about all the things they did that were messy and harmful and problematic. But it doesn't sit well quite. For you, does it? Like, it feels like it's just part of a picture Like half of it's filled in, and the other half of it's not filled in. And sometimes I think when we don't remember rightly, it's like we're only remembering half of the picture. And when we remember our pain, we remember our suffering, we have to remember both sides. Sometimes with patients that I'm working with who have been through some difficult things, whether it's in their marriage or abuse or having to leave the home because of the abuse and whatnot, there's this thing called negative affect bias in psychology. It's like, it's a one bit of psychology jargon I'll throw out at you today. But negative affect bias essentially means our tendency as time goes along is to remember things either more negatively than they were or more positively than they were. Our tendency as we sort of get away from the event is to go in one direction or the other. And there are times that I actually have to remind my patients, you know, you left because he was abusing you. You left because things were violent there. You left because he's an alcoholic and he's coming home and he's doing harm to your family and to your children. Because sometimes the desire to return is just so profound. And so remembering rightly, I think, kind of remembers both halves of the equation and kind of everything in between. And when we're suffering, we sometimes want to get away from it. And we want to pretend like something wasn't real when it was. And we could go more fully into that, but the clock is my enemy and it always fights me. Number four, they hold the good-bad tension and don't expect their situation to immediately or perhaps even fully resolve. Point number four. This Ecclesiastes passage I used to really get frustrated with this passage. I don't know if you've ever read this before. I love Ecclesiastes because I'm sort of an existentialist at heart, but it never feels satisfying. I don't know, you read Ecclesiastes, and I don't know, something in it is like, ah, you grind no matter what. But Ecclesiastes 7, 13 through 14, Consider the work of God. Who can straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, 
be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider this. God has made one of these along with the other. So there's some sense in Ecclesiastes here that we have to kind of take the good with the bad. Right? This references a little bit to the previous point, but this one's a little more nuanced than that. That we have to hold what I refer to as this good-bad tension. And sometimes we have to kind of confront the reality that the situation is not going to immediately or perhaps ever fully resolve. Sometimes things happen and they're broken and they're permanently broken. I think about Job and I think about his experience kind of after all of the bad happened, right? And God blesses him with like twice as large of a flock and more children and, you know, more land and every, everything good, right? You kind of get that sense within Job. Everything's good. And yet I think to myself, that's all great, but it doesn't replace people that he's lost. You know, my first wife and son, I am, several years later, I remarried. Uh, I have just a wonderful, beautiful, lovely wife who I don't even near deserve and three just delightful sons that I so enjoy. And I'm grateful for them. But they're not a replacement for my first wife or my son. That's not how this thing works. And so I think kind of holding on to the reality that as we kind of go through this life, some things might resolve and some things might not. When my parents were ill and dying of cancer... That was not going to resolve, this side of heaven anyway. There are some things that we experience physically, emotionally, relationally, and those things aren't going to get fixed. And as much as we want them to, we have to kind of hold on to that reality that as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, God made one as well as the other. This is part of the lot we're in. And I find oftentimes that false hope that we try to give people ends up being destructive for them. I think one of the worst phrases that you can use with somebody that you're counseling or just discipling or speaking into is that phrase, everything's going to be fine. You don't know that. Like, sometimes things aren't going to be fine. In fact, a lot of times things aren't going to be fine. They're going to be hard, and they're going to be messy, and they're going to be painful, and it'll be difficult. And whatever the fine is, right, which is maybe just too shallow of a term, whatever the fine is, that might be like born out of something that really took a toll on us. So holding that good-bad tension, there's a psychological kind of notion behind this because most of us just don't like holding the messy We like to go to the black and the white. We like to go to the good or the bad, like the Vikings. I'm sorry, they had a rough time. I was rooting for the Vikings, I was. But they try to go to the good or the bad. Or they they do go to the good and the bad. They go to the black and the white. And most of life is in the messy middle. And oftentimes that black, white, good, bad way of thinking, it's just, it's like intellectual laziness, to be honest or it's avoidance of something that we really need to confront. So, again, kind of being able to stay in that space. 
I'm going to go through the last ones kind of quickly because I think we're running short on time. Number five, they allow themselves time and space to grieve. This goes to that Romans 5 passage. This is just the first half of that Romans 5 passage. But we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. It took me years to work through the loss of my wife and son. And it's uncomfortable for people when we're suffering. And we usually want them to move through it faster than they can. And oftentimes it's because we don't like being around their suffering, right? It's uncomfortable for us. It reminds us of our own suffering, reminds us of our own impotence and our own inability to really alleviate their pain. And yet what Paul is saying is that suffering produces perseverance. In other versions, it's called endurance. But man, perseverance just assumes time, right? When I think about that word perseverance, Somewhere wrapped up in that word is, if I'm persevering, I'm enduring, this is going to take time, it's going to be a process. And so they allow themselves that time and space to grieve. We're not a very good grieving culture. We like things fast. And so a lot of times as I'm sitting with my patients, I'm maybe the only person in their life that's actually giving them time and space to grieve. Everybody else just kind of wants them to move on. But I value that grief because that's how we let go. Number six, they embrace how the pain may be creating a deeper, better self. So the second half of that passage, perseverance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. That's the sequence. (laughs) That's the sequence. We don't get from suffering to hope without going through the perseverance and the character development that's happening within the perseverance. We don't get to bypass that. And when people do, I'm always skeptical that it's real and it's solid and something's actually happened in their core because I just don't believe it. (laughs) I've been around people for way too long. I've been doing therapy for way too long to believe that people can move through it without a process. And so that idea then of this kind of creating a deeper, better self, I don't know about for you, but in my life experience, frankly, most of the good that's happened in my life has been through allowing pain to shape me. St. Augustine says in the City of God, he says, he says the same shaking that makes fetid water stink, right? Fetid like stale water that shakes stale water and a bunch of stench comes up from it. That same shaking makes perfume emit a a more like lovely kind of fragrance. It's the shaking. The shaking is going to do one thing or the other. And the shaking is necessary. And the shaking is creating a better self. I don't like it. I wish the sequence and the rules were different, but this is just what we have. And so being open to the idea that it's creating a better self, in the middle of it, don't go there. This is one of those things in the rearview mirror you see. I don't think you see it while you're in real time. Number seven, they redeem some of their pain by coming alongside someone else who is going through hard times. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4 All praise to the God and Father of our Master, Jesus the Messiah, Father of all mercy, God of all healing counsel, 
He comes alongside us when we go through hard times. And before you know it, he brings us alongside someone else who is going through hard times so that we can be there for that person just as God was there for us. I think if I would have you hold on to one thing this morning, hold on to that. Because it's difficult for anyone to sit with someone who's suffering who hasn't suffered and hasn't suffered and moved through it healthily. And you can almost tell how healthily you've moved through your own pain by what it's like for you to sit with someone else who is in pain. And God uses this, not creates it, but uses it so that you can minister more effectively with his spirit for people who are suffering. And then lastly, they find hope in their belief that God will ultimately redeem all of creation. So Colossians 1, 18 through 20, he was supreme in the beginning and leading the resurrection parade. This is a message, so he uses some interesting language, but the resurrection parade. He is supreme in the end. From the beginning to the end, he's there, towering far above everything and everyone. So spacious is he, so expansive, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, and this, this is the part I love, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. So it's interesting as we're doing, I didn't know we were going to be doing communion today. I think it was in the email I got somewhere, but I, I lost track of that. But that passage, our communion, this idea that God is ultimately redeeming all things, that the arc of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is that God is redeeming all things. And his desire, I believe, is in your pain, in your suffering, he wants to use that to help redeem you and help you participate in the redeeming of creation, which are your fellow congregants, your friends, your families, your children, your parents, your grandparents, whoever that may be, because I just don't think God wastes anything. And if you're open to it, if you're open to this, I think God will really use it mightily in your life. So when I think about suffering and pain, I don't like it, but, but I believe this promise. I really do. And I believe that he will redeem this in the end, however that's going to look. And it will surprise you. God will use you in surprising ways if you leave yourself open to that. Let me pray, and we'll wrap up our time. God, I'm uh, grateful for these people. Grateful that it's like being with family thousands of miles from home. Grateful for the work that you are doing in their lives. God, I know in a group this size, there are people who are going through a great deal. And I pray that today you would meet them in that, that you would attend to their pain, to their depression, to their anxiety, to their trauma, to their stress, whatever that might be, that your spirit would touch them and renew them and encourage them. Uh, you would be with Bjorn and his family as they minister to this population here. And I'm just so grateful to you and for the ways in which you brought them here. 
So God, we pray that you would bless our day, that you'd bless this uh, communion, this um, time of, of just remembering your sacrifice on the cross. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.